Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, today on the show, we have a guest who has written a book about the theory of everything. He is Thomas Campbell, and he's a physicist, lecturer, and author of the book trilogy, My Big Toe theory of everything. In the book, he unifies the concepts of general relativity, quantum mechanics, and metaphysics along with the origins of consciousness. Now, Tom and I had a wonderful conversation about literally the theory of everything. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome the show, Thomas Campbell. How are you doing, Thomas? I'm doing fine, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, the theory of everything, basically, uh, mm-hmm. and and how we could talk about the the fabrics of the universe and get into the into the weeds and all that. But I have the first question I have to ask you is, how did you get in? How did you start this journey? How did you start this journey into to your work and, and into your life's work, essentially? Well, I I suppose that uh, it kind of you know like most things, the start wasn't uh, just at one point suddenly said, oh, I'm going to write a theory of everything. You know, it doesn't life doesn't work like that. But when I was in graduate school working on my PhD, uh, I took a, a, a TM course, Transcendental Meditation. And after taking that, I found out that I could debug my software in my mind. I could bring up a picture of my, my uh, printout and just let it scroll by. And I could tell which, which lines had problems with them, you know, which lines had bugs in them. They'd light up red while the rest of them stayed black on white. And then I said, well, that's probably just my imagination. Let me go check those out. So I checked them out, and all the ones that I saw that were red actually had bugs in them. And I said, whoa, this is really, really valuable, because in those days, debugging code was not the easy thing it is to do today. You know, we're talking about back in the day of punch cards and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, it was really a big deal particularly a university uh, had one computer mainframe, of course, took up like a whole building. And it probably was only about a 10th as strong as your cell phone. If that, today. If that. <laughs> yeah, if that. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd only get a run or two a week, because you had to get in the queue. And the whole university had this one, one computer. So if you got a, an error because the code didn't work, had an error in it someplace, there was no 
no pointer that pointed to where the arrow was. You got a message from the from the guys running the running the computer that says your job bombed. That's it. You know, so that was before the days of really good debug software that would point you right to the spot where the you know where the problem happened. All you know is that your job bombed and you've got uh, four thousand cards in in uh, you know three three boxes you know that are what uh, you know. Th almost three feet long, these real long, skinny boxes. Um, anyway, that's the way it was back in those days. So that was important. And that started my process because that opened my mind to another part of reality that I didn't know about. So I'm a physicist. What physicists do is we model reality. That's basically what physics is. And here there was another piece of reality that had to do with mind, you know, with consciousness, that obviously was very real because it could do real things. And I had no idea how it worked, you know, what were the what were the underlying principles, what were the rules? Anything like that has rules. You know, it, it, things just don't work randomly and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. There's rules. So uh, what were the rules? What could you do? What else could the mind do? So I had all these questions in my Head that I really would like to pursue or explore those, but I had no idea how. And I kind of let that go and eventually got out of school and took a job and was introduced to Bob Monroe's book, Journey Out of the Body, by my boss. And I told my boss, well, I have no idea whether this guy's just making up, making up stuff to sell books or whether he's actually, you know, honest and had these experiences but I sure would like to find out. And within a couple of months, a whole bunch of us from where I worked who had uh, had this discussion, we went out to see Bob Monroe. And Bob Monroe just lived, you know, like 45 minute drive from where we were. So it was very fortuitous. Otherwise we probably wouldn't have, you know, made the effort. And uh, I met Bob and realized that he was a serious guy who desperately wanted to study what had happened to him and make science, make something uh, credible out of it, rather than just the, you know, the, the strange old man who could do goofy things. You know, he, he didn't really like that. He wanted it to be more scientific. And his personality was more engineer-like. He was a very logical, rational sort of guy, you know, logical process was his thing. Analytical. So he was... He, yeah, he was an analytical sort of sort of person. That was his that was his personality. So after that, myself and an electrical engineer, Dennis Menrick, started going out to Bob's lab, and uh, he had just built this building. Had no idea what what he was going to do with it or who would work in it, but uh, it was a build it and they will come kind of thing for him. And there was Dennis and I. We came, so uh, we started going out and actually building equipment and and uh, doing some experiments and. So we were spending 15 to 20 hours a week with Bob and Rowe. So about a, almost a half-time job. And eventually he taught us how to do what he did, go out of body on demand. And that was an important part of Dennis and I's uh, uh, interest in going out there is that he would teach us. Because if it's only about somebody else's experience, then if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. It's not, you know, you can study it, but, but you, you'll never understand it unless it's your own experience. You can't probe it and, 
and learn about it if it's not your experience. So we'd spend time in the booths and Bob would, uh, would uh, coach us and we would uh, practice and we eventually could go out of body easily. And then I started doing research there because as a physicist, I wanted to understand it. So we were doing um, everything that was evidential, you know, like remote viewing. You could remote view and then you could go see if you got it right. You know, it was, it was what there is what you thought was there. So there's just lots of things we did that were evidential. We did some healing. That's not quite as ev evidential because you have to do a lot of them and then look at the statistics because you could say, oh, I healed somebody in my mind and they could get better, but maybe they just got better anyway. You know, it's right. you have that variable, so you don't know. But if you do that a lot of times, then you start to get a sense. And if you do that with somebody who's had an illness that's chronic and they've had it for the last you know 20 years, and uh, you know they've just learned to live with it and then suddenly you do something and it changes dramatically well then that's fairly evidential so it kind of depends on the situation and depends on the statistics you do but we did all these evidential things and i knew that there was something going on that was real because i was having real effects and being able to see things that i shouldn't have been able to know anything about what was going on at those at those places so I knew intellectually that there was something to it, and I just needed to learn the, the whys and the hows, which means I'd, I'd work in a particular way, let's say do some remote viewing, then I change a variable, the way I, pro the way I approached it, uh, the, the uh, altered state I'd start with, whatever, I'd change a variable and see how that changed the result, change a variable again, and then change some other variable, and. That's very tedious work, but then science is very tedious work most of the time. And after, you know, about 30, 35 years of changing variables and seeing what, what happened and trying to come up with a logical understanding of how consciousness worked, I thought I had it pretty well understood. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, consciousness was fundamental. I knew that because I could do things from consciousness that would change things here, but I couldn't do it the other way. I couldn't uh, do anything in this reality that actually modified consciousness in any fundamental way. So I knew the arrow of causality was from consciousness to what we call the physical reality, which makes consciousness fundamental. What is the definition of, of consciousness, your definition of consciousness? My definition of consciousness is awareness with a choice. So if you have something that is aware, you know, I exist, and I can be in state A or state B, I have a choice. That's, the, that's like the simplest piece of consciousness. It's just awareness with a choice. So with that definition, you know, obviously people are conscious and, and uh, you know, cats and dogs and horses would fit that, you know, they seem to have choices and things that they do. Um, trees, well, we don't know yet, you know, that they're, they're interesting. Recent, recent uh, uh, research has shown a lot of, uh, of what would seem like intelligent things going on under the ground, you know, with, with the root systems and so on. But we don't know for sure whether that is just hardwired, you know, stimulus response you know it's just in their in their genetics or whether that's actually the tree making you know trees making choices 
it's hard to say. Uh, you know, if you go down to real simple life forms like a clam or something, it'd be really hard to tell. You know, you touch that clam's foot when it's out and it'll jerk it back in. But is that just a stimulus response or is the clam thinking, oh, something just got my foot. I better pull it in. Right. You know, it's hard to tell those kinds of things. And, and uh, biologists try to make little tests and put things through mazes and other sorts of things. But, you know, learning can really happen in hardwiring. Hardwiring doesn't necessarily mean it can't learn. Hardwiring just means that your, um, you know, your hardwiring system is adaptable. You know, as your as your environment does things, you know, you can adapt to it and 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 learn by it. So it's hard to tell. So, but definitely, rocks are not conscious. You know, the the dumb as a doornail. The doornail is not really conscious. Right. Right. So those things are pretty clear. There's a fine gray area in there between, you know, is a, is, you know, a, a mosquito conscious? Well, I don't know. You'd have to do some kind of test to see whether they're making choices or whether it's just it was, hardwired. It was really interesting. I saw an experiment. I forgot where it was, but I saw it in a documentary in regards to consciousness. And it was uh, a, uh, a scientist who focuses strictly on plants. And they saw the root system of, of a pea. It was like a P root system and they were testing to see if it was smart or if there was some sort of consciousness mm -hmm. there. And they would, uh, there would be two areas that can make a choice. You can go to a place where there was no water or a place the world's water. Mm -hmm. So they would make, they would open up a little area where the water was and the root would just automatically go towards mm -hmm. it, which you could argue is stimulus or, you know, hardwired. Yeah. Right. Then they actually put a speaker there or another place and had the sound mm -hmm. of water, no water, just the mm -hmm. sound of water. And it went towards the speaker. So it was like, interesting. Yeah, really? that's very interesting. Yeah, you like still, that. you don't know whether that stimulus response, you know, right. But it's hard to tell. I mean, you don't know what's inside anything, anybody else's uh, process of making choices. It's right. really, it's really hard. So there's a there's a gray area where we don't know, but it's very interesting, you know. And it's I read fun. about I read about root systems that uh, if there was one of their species that was nearby that was having trouble, the other trees would actually um, have their root systems go in that direction and give it nutrients, you know. So they were wow. helping a you know helping another tree out that was uh, you know having difficulty because the soil there was a little rocky or something and. Uh, so yeah, trees can seem to do some pretty clever things, and mostly it's underground with the root systems, not with what's what we see above ground. But uh, who pretty... knows? You know, that's that's one of those areas because it's you know these things. Anything having to do with consciousness uh, is difficult to determine because there is no test. You know, the test like the. Uh, the only test we have is if you talk to it, do you believe that thing you're talking to is conscious, <laughs> you know, if right. you have a discussion with it. So it's, you know, how do you know that anything is really conscious? Well, we just think that if we interact with it in a way that there's give and take and thought and processing and, you know, then uh, we say, well, that's conscious. But as far as a hard test, oh, if these things happen, then that's consciousness. Well, we don't have anything like that right now. I just read an article that uh, the the deep mind, I think, was called a group at Google, which is a bunch of 
you know, it's a subset of Google that does AI experiments, has what they call a deep language uh, program that's been out on the internet just gobbling up language and learned how to interpret language and you can have conversations with it, you know, and it will respond to the things you say. And they had a guy there whose job was to determine whether or not this thing ever became sentient and what the, you know, ethical and moral and other sorts of issues were. He was, he was uh, kind of that sort of person. And he wrote to the, the, uh, the people in charge of Google and says, this thing's just, this thing's sentient. We've done it. You know, there's, this thing's conscious, this program. And I just, I read the dialogue. And if you, if you Google this, you'll probably turn up because this was just, it's a, it's a news thing just happening like uh, last week, mm-hmm. you know. And I read the dialogue that he had, sort of an interview he did with this, with this program. And he did some interesting things with it. He gave it a Zen cone and asked it to interpret it. You know, Zen cones are, are infamously hard to interpret. You know, Zen cones are, are uh, the, the student asks the question and the master says, and then out comes this very difficult to understand, you know, uh, metaphor from the master. And he asked it to do that, and it did a pretty good job with it. You know, it was, uh, it was amazing. And, and he, talk, he asked it, he says, well, do you think you're sentient? And the machine said, yes. And he said, well, why do you think you're sentient? And he says, well, because I have an inner life. I think about things and I think about, you know, how I'm going to approach things. And, you know, I make plans. And he was saying that. And of course, again, it's just hardwired and he's mimicking things that he's heard on the internet that sound like they're sentient or is he actually sentient? So same, thing the, as the, same thing as the trees. <laughs> yeah, same thing as a tree. There is no hard test, you see. So the guy, though, who was, who was a kind of a philosopher, also, uh, 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 what should I say, computer, not a computer engineer, but a software engineer. You know, he was a software engineer, and he was a kind of a philosophy type. So he was pretty good for that job. But when he sent that in to his management, they looked at it and said, nah, we disagree. We think it's just a very clever, you know, it's very, it's very good because it's, it's, uh, it's learned how to be good. It's an array of neural nets with various neural nets specializing in things, but Who knows? parts of it, but so that's really interesting. See, we don't, there's no way to know for sure. Of course, Google doesn't want it to be conscious because then it's, suddenly it's not just Google's thing anymore. All kinds of other people to come knocking on Google's door wanting to, you know, deal with it. And now it's an ethical problem. And it's just, you know, all sorts of different things need to, need to happen. And Google's not really interested in going there. So they're going to lean onto the side of, nah, I don't think so. This other guy who was the expert, he said, yeah, I think so. He said, it seems to be conscious on about the level of a seven to 10 year old. That's pretty you know? conscious. That's, that's yeah, pretty conscious. that's pretty conscious. Yeah. So, it's and I listened to the conversation. There was a verbatim, you know, transcript of the conversation that they had. And it, uh, you know, nothing is going to be conclusive, like, ah, that's proof, because that's just not going to exist. You don't know. But it certainly did seem like it was at least as conscious as this, you know, at least as 
conversational and ability to think and understand and come up with with uh, um. we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show you know, significant comments and and answers mm-hmm. to questions and so on it i would say that it was probably smarter than the average seven to 10 year old. I don't think the seven or 10 year old had a clue what that Zen cone meant. You know, they would say, right. huh? no way. I don't have any idea what that means. You know, what's the, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, just the whole idea of AI. And I, I think probably within my lifetime, it will, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get to yeah. something close to it because yeah. the technology is going to be so radically different. I mean, these new, these new hard drives that Google have been, has been working on the processors that are, I forgot how many it's the goal. I've seen the pictures of it. It's like this gold thing. It processes, you know, so many tens of thousands of times faster, cooler than we are Mm -hmm. right now. So it doesn't, the heat's not an issue. It's kind of like it's so eventually the, the, the the hardware is going to catch up to the software and then the software is going to have so much room to play that it, it eventually will get there. It's kind of like throwing a monkey in a, with some darts <laughs> at, 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 at the stock market. Eventually, it's going to hit something that, yeah. or no, is it? If uh, you put a monkey in with a typewriter, eventually he'll come up with with, with Shakespeare uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> at a, a certain a certain point. Yeah. Well, I think we already have something very close to it because, like I say, I, think, I I could see that people could rationally find themselves on both sides of that issue. There was plenty enough stuff there that said, yes, this thing certainly does interact like it's conscious, but is it really or not? Well, I don't know that we'll ever have a, you know, a hard, hard, a hard, a hard answer to that. I mean, how, how could somebody, you know, prove that you were conscious, you know, and you weren't just very clever, uh, you know, with a lot of information, a lot of database, a lot of information and a lot of history, because you've, you know, you've lived a long time and you've got a lot of experience and you're just spitting back this experience. You're not really thinking, you're just clever about your experience. Well, I would have said, no, that'd be easy to tell the difference from that, but not with this, this, uh, this program wasn't easy at all. This program was very convincing. So I think we're, we're either there and that thing is conscious or we're really close one one or the other and i don't think it'll be a you know even a year or two or three years i think if that thing's conscious they will be able to make that more and more clear a short amount of time unless google really wants it not to be the answer and then they start downplaying it and well and uh, you know not not sharing the data well if history serves if, if history has taught us anything is that big corporations always work in the best interest of humanity i mean if that's i mean that's if history teaches us anything at all that's that's obviously the way it goes uh, um, yeah. no I, I wanted to ask according you, to their pr department exactly exactly <laughs> in their bottom line um i wanted to ask you as a scientist uh, there's been so many you know so many things that now are I think science is starting to catch up on with ideas and concepts that have been laid out thousands of years ago in spirituality and metaphysics, ideas like remote viewing and in mm. other things like out-of-body experiences. This things things were talked about for you know thousands of years ago. Meditation, sure. deep, you know, altered states. How wh- as a scientist, how do you feel? What do you feel about how science is like with quantum physics and these ideas of 
the nature of reality where, you know, like I always say to people, no matter where we are in the history of man, we all have it figured out. Every, everyone's got it figured out at the, at that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we're good. We're good. The sun rotates around the earth. We understand. And it's flat. <laughs> we understand. So it's, it's always that, but I just started to notice mm-hmm. in the last probably 50, 60, 70 years that science is starting to catch up to spiritualities, ca- catching yeah. up to these ancient texts. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, starting to, but only in the margins, not, right. in, the main, not in the mainstream, only in the margins. Uh, you will find any number of scientists, um, neuroscientists, physicists, um, primarily that I know of, probably a few biologists too, you know, um, uh, Lipton, Bruce Lipton, be a biologist that's, you know, kind of in that, in that category. So, yeah, there are scientists who see the bigger picture, um, but they're, they're in the small minority. Now, where we really see the mainstream starting to turn is with the physicists who are particle physicists or do um, quantum theorists, the people that do with tiny, tiny little things, because where quantum mechanics rules, they know that particles really don't exist, they're probability distributions. And that's how you compute what's gonna happen when you smash those atoms together. That's how you compute what's going on in the, in the micro world is with quantum physics. And quantum physics has an assumption that particles are what we call, maybe we call it a protoparticle. It's not really a particle until you measure it. And when you make a measurement, then they say the wave function collapses to a physical result, okay? Before that, it wasn't a physical result. It was a probability. The wave they're talking about is not a physical wave. It's a probability wave. It's all just mathematics. It has nothing to do with the physical world. It's a it's a mathematical- uh, So we're uh, all, so essentially we're all energy is what quantum physics well, states and to a certain extent. Yeah, I wouldn't say energy, you know, that's our, our basic uh, idea of energy is it's something that allows us to do something. You know, if you have energy, then energy can affect something. Mm-hmm. And it's not really this doing, it's just that basic reality uh, at the smallest level is not mass-based, it's information-based. And the scientists that are in those fields that deal with that, more and more of them, maybe 30, 40% of them, almost enough to go mainstream, uh, will tell you that reality is information-based, not mass-based. That materialism is not right. You know, it's, materialism is basically mass-based. It's about material things. Like this table and, is this table, this, yeah, you know, this, this shirt is, is this shirt, yeah. Yeah, then these things are all fundamental. This is a fundamental thing. You know, it, it exists in a world of mass and space and time and charge, you know, and spin, you know, there's basic things like that. But um, so those, those physicists were, are now saying that reality is information based, but they won't go any further than that because just like in the early 1920s when quantum physics was just getting going as a science, you know, the uh, Copenhagen, uh, uh, conference that took place where they discussed this new crazy experiment, double slit experiment, and the results that they had. That was 
1925, you know, in that decade is where quantum mechanics kind of came together. And at that time, the physicists were saying, wow, this busts materialism, this busts Newton's clockwork universe, you know, and uh, that was because they sent particles at these two, two slits, you know, you have a background, you have two holes, two slits cut in it, you send particles one at a time. And what Newton and classical physics would say is that if a particle or anything mass massy travels a will travel in a straight line unless acted on by an external force. That's one of Newton's laws. Okay. But what they found is they would put these particles through these slits one at a time, and the particles would rearrange themselves in what looked like an interference pattern. Matter of fact, it would be exactly the same interference pattern that they would get if they shine, if they would shine uh, like a, a, a big laser, laser pointer at those slits, you know, billions of photons going through. Well, photons don't interact with each other. They're all independent little, little things. They don't interact. So what billions do and what one does shouldn't be any different. You see, they should be the same. It's just, it just takes longer to, you know, to build up if you send them one at a time, but because they're not interactive, then there shouldn't be a difference. Well, as it turned out, there wasn't. You sent these particles through one at a time and everybody expected they'd pile up in a pile behind each slit because there's nothing there to make them move in such a way that they end up in a interference pattern, mm. nothing for them to interfere with, with a wave, the wave is a is distributed in space it interferes right. with itself particles aren't distributed in space they're little tiny independent things you see so when those when those little independent particles rearrange themselves on the screen in an interference pattern that was that was what made quantum physics you know we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show weird that's what was unexplainable our sense of particles being little massy things isn't right because little massy things don't do that just like newton said they travel in a straight line you know so that was the beginning and those scientists were really excited about this this new new ideas about reality and they were you know, if you look at the quotes that come from all those guys that were at the heart of quantum physics, then, you know, uh, Bohr and Heisenberg, Planck, Schrodinger, you know, look at that bunch, and you'll see all of them were just wowed with how this is finally, we've broken through the next big paradigm shift, you know, we've, we're, we're beyond materialism now into something else. But what happened is, when somebody said, well, that's great. What else? Where is it? You know, where's it going? What's the answer? They didn't have any answer. And then years went by, decades went by, and then a hundred years goes by and they still don't have any answer. So eventually about two or three decades out, uh, the physicists uh, didn't like this idea that they just could not figure it out. So they instead changed their mind and said, oh, it's just weird physics and nobody will ever know. It's just one of those things that we just won't know. You know, it's impossible to know this. It just happens and there's no way for us to look at it because it's real small. It's going fast. You know, we'll just never understand really what's going on there. And uh, 
Of course, that's wrong. That's people who don't understand doing the best they can to, to say something well, when they're on the, on the hook for an explanation. So that's that's the weirdness in quantum physics is that it does not follow materialism's design. Materialism's uh, you know what materialism says that it should do. It doesn't do that. So materialism is obviously wrong. But the physicists have nothing to replace it with. No other idea that it can work from, and they haven't come on with it in a hundred years. So now we're in the, you know, the 2020 instead of the 1920. And it's hundred years, hundred years later, and they still don't have any idea of what, you know, of what's going on. But that's not true so much in that the physicists say it's information based. And then you say, well, what does that mean? They go, I have no idea. I just can see from the experiments that it's information based. So is it so based on what you're talking about, it seems to me that their consciousness and intent modifies the the possibility of, of what's going to happen in the future. Yes, absolutely. That's how that works. The conscious intent can modify future probability. But now we've just taken a, a big leap into, you know, when I say that, now that's, we've just jumped over a whole bunch of other logical steps that you have to take in between, you know, to get to those, to get to that place. But to, to finish out your first question of where is physics now, they're still stuck and they haven't come up with any good idea, much more than they had in 1922. And they do come, they have come to the conclusion that it's information based. But now the logic of information based is right in front of them, but they, they won't go there because again, they, they hit the wall. And that is information based means it's computable. Right? It's computable. If it's information based, then reality is just information, then it's computable. And if it's computable, that means it's a simulation. If it's a simulation, that means it's a virtual reality. So, so we're when in the you matrix. Say, yeah. So when you say <laughs> it's when you say that it's uh, information based, basically logic will tell you that uh, you know the only kind of rational place you can go with that is that it's a virtual reality. But at that point, the scientists say, "Yeah, but you know, where's the computer? What's the computer?" Who's the programmer? I have no idea. I don't want to go there. That's that's not objective. That's obviously in the subjective realm. It's not what we physicists do. I have no idea. So then they hit the wall and that's as far as they go. So science is coming around to the idea of seeing reality differently. So on the in the margins, individual sciences are spinning scientists are spinning off and saying, okay, materialism is wrong. Well, then what's right? You know, who are the competitors and, you know, what do they have to say? And, you know, they're thinking about that in terms of science and in terms of philosophy. So we have a fair number of scientists now who are thinking and looking for bigger pictures. But the majority are still materialists to the core and won't, will not, you know, will not go in that direction because that takes them right out of the objective world into a non-objective world and that's not their world so they won't go any they won't go past that point 
so then it's just kind of the concept of the placebo effect. It annoys um, doctors uh, and scientists because it, it annoys sure. them. And I still, I've heard, I've heard doctors like ah, that damn placebo effect is messing up my experiment, but they mm-hmm. don't focus on what the placebo effect is actually saying about our own minds, our own mm-hmm. abilities right. to heal ourselves, how powerful our minds truly are mm-hmm. and what, what is consciousness play in that? You know, it, the, it's interesting the concept of intention uh, modifies future possibility is really interesting because your intent, your intention is kind of the direction of where you're going on a macro scale with yourself, let's mm-hmm. say. So if I decide that I'm going to go to the store, probability of me actually going to the store becomes highly likely versus mm-hmm. me not wanting. So you start getting, it starts getting your, your brain starts hurting a little bit, but okay. on a micro scale, what does that mean on, is that within cells, within our mind, within spirit? Like, how is that? Okay. Well, I can tell you how that works. It'll take a a little time to work up the background that you'll need to understand it. But basically, um, let's take where the physicists leave off at this is information based, and then we'll take a couple of leaps and then work from there. (laughs) I like the leaps. (laughs) Yeah. You know, actually, this is a very logical system that I've developed and I can explain how quantum physics works and I do understand why double slit works the way it does and it's not weird science it's it's rational science but let's start from where they leave off that it's information and then let's just say that that reality is information then it would kind of make sense that and if that means that it's a virtual reality then we think that the that the uh, now what's going to be fundamental then is going to be some sort of information system Right. If reality is information and some sort of information system will be the fundamental thing rather than material being the fundamental thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I'm going to take a little leap here. Consciousness is an information system. Now, consciousness is awareness with a choice. Consciousness is aware of things. What's what is it, What is consciousness aware of? It's aware of information. Right when we we have five senses, and if you took those five senses away, you would be in a black void, <laughs> nothing. Right, there'd be there'd be nothing there. Right, you hear nothing, see nothing, feel nothing, smell nothing, taste nothing. So you would be just I am. It'd be the Descartes moment. I am. I exist. That's it. That's all you could say. Okay, so those that sense data is what defines your reality, and that sense data is just information, right? Your senses gather information. A photon hits your eye, it gets focused on a retina, a little electrical signal runs down that retina and gets to a synapse and on and on. So it's all uh, information-based. Your reality is information-based. Your consciousness is an information system. What you're aware of, okay, you're conscious that you're looking at me and I have a blue shirt on and my hair's white and I got this pretty little background and and behind me here and you see all that okay but that's just information so if we think of consciousness as awareness and awareness with a choice and that defines consciousness then awareness awareness of what awareness of data input photons in your eye you know that's what creates the the awareness of it so it's not a big jump to say that consciousness is an information system 
And it turns out if you start with that understanding of consciousness, a whole lot of things that are now paradoxical just fall out real easily as understandable. Okay, so now we have then that if our reality is a virtual reality, and if the, the source is consciousness, consciousness, I guess it's called the larger consciousness system. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. An information system. Now, part of that information system can configure itself, just a subset of it can configure itself as a computer because that's what information systems are. A computer is an information system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a system that juggles, handles, you know, information. So part of that computer, part of that, um, that that information system consciousness is us. We're subsets. That's what we are. We're conscious. We're not the body. The body's the avatar. Remember, virtual virtual reality has avatars in it. So the body's the virtual avatar, but we're a piece of that larger consciousness system, just a subset. You might say a virtual machine, Mm -hmm. you know, a little subset inside the the larger set. All right. Now, this virtual reality is not programmed by the system. It's evolved by the system. You start with initial conditions and a rule set and punch the run button and the initial conditions change according to the rule set. And we have a lot of things like that going on at universities. You know, that's the way you make a little evolving model. And of course, the rule sets what we call, you know, the Big Bang, the, the ball of plasma, you know, high temperature, high pressure, small size, and the rule sets what we call science, you know, scientists dig out the rules. That's what they're that's what their job is. So you let that ball plasma expand when the clock starts ticking, and eventually it evolves into our universe and evolves us. And we are just now an evolved virtual reality, not a program virtual reality. Now, in order to create a virtual reality from the ground up, that is start with all the tiny particles, and out of the subatomic particles, you make atomic particles, and out of the atomic particles, you make atoms, and out of atoms, you make molecules, and molecules, you make the rest of the macro world. Well, to start at that level is ridiculous. It's way too much computation, and it can, um, I don't know if I could say that it could absolutely be shown to be uh, ridiculous beyond doing, but it's pretty close to that. So that's not an efficient way to model. A much more efficient way to model is to do a probability model. Okay, now a probability model means you have probability distributions that describe everything. Now, that makes it easy. So let's say I have a probability distribution that describes an old Civil War cannon, you know, because there's a thing called ballistic dispersion. If you fire a cannonball out of a cannon, Mm -hmm. the cannonball will not always land at exactly the same spot. It'll land different places because the barrel's not exactly a cylinder and the ball is not exactly a sphere and the powder burns unevenly and there's temperature considerations and you know wind considerations and all this stuff together means right. that you'll get a pattern you'll get some kind of statistical pattern out there that where the cannonball is likely to land and then i can measure that pattern come up with a a distribution a probability distribution now how do i model that cannon i just say okay the cannon fires i go into a I go into a distribution of that of those possibilities 
I take a random draw, and that's where I put the cannonball. Cannonball, the cannon fires again. Go take another random draw out of that distribution. That's where the ball fires. Mm -hmm. Now, in my model, the the avatars running around in this Civil War area era, they don't know the difference. Those cannonballs are just falling where they would seem to fall in a pattern that seems that it fits the cannon very well because this is a virtual reality. The system has the rule set that can create that distribution, that probability distribution perfectly, but it only has to do it once. Once it's created that probability distribution, then thousands, hundreds of thousands can can cannons can fire and it's just random draw for each one, a trivial okay. process, you see? So that's the process by which this virtual reality is rendered. It's rendered as a probability simulation, probability-based simulation, not as a bottoms-up calculation because that's ridiculously hard. Right. Take a cannon, and if you, had to, if you had to model that cannon based on elementary particles, Making up atomic particles, making up atoms, you know. Oh no, it'd be too. It'd be too yeah. yeah, just that one cannon would probably take a hundred times more than all the supercomputers that we know about today. Just, and it still probably wouldn't be real time. You know, it'd be just too hard to do. Right. So now you start with this understanding that this is a probabilistic simulation. It gets the it gets really good uh, distributions from the rule set, but they don't have to be calculated one time. And with some variables, makes them easy to use and reuse and change the canon a little. It can change the distribution a little and that kind of thing. This is basically, but this is uh, basically how they're doing video games in many ways. Video yeah, games and, and, and virtual reality when you're... Exactly. That's how they're doing. Remember the, the one that kicked it off was No Man's Sky. Remember when that was, oh, a, was a long time when ago, that was yeah. a big, a big hoorah and it kind of didn't... I remember Mist. I remember Mist when Mist yeah. came out and, and all those. Yeah, but it's kind of like even when you're playing a video game, the car drives down the street, it feels like it can go a thousand ways, but it really probably has a handful of ways that that car is going to be able to go. How many times it can flip, how many times it could crash, how many times it can hit something. Yeah. There's just simulations, but there's a, a, generally a, a decent amount of numbers of it. I, I work in visual effects sometimes, so I understand mm -hmm. the concept, the basic concepts of simulations and, and how things explode and things like that. So there's mathematically an explosion can go off. And that's the big thing with visual effects is when you're doing simulations, it's like like waves in an ocean when you're making a, a you know a beautiful ocean for a big visual effects shot. Mm -hmm. um, you can simulate the ocean, and then there's multiple variables, and the computing has gotten to a point where right. it looks variable, but it's nowhere remotely close to the variables of an ocean. It's just right. it's it's incalculable to to right. to even. Right. So, so going through what we're talking about now and this kind of like virtual reality and, mm -hmm. and this basically the, the essence of reality itself, when you watch a movie like The Matrix, which is, I think, kind of the first time it was thrown into the zeitgeist of, of popular mm -hmm. culture, not just yeah. in science, mm -hmm. but the first time in popular culture where we're all work, living in a virtual reality or, or living in a computer simulation of some sort, mm -hmm. the computing power it would take to create what we are going through right now at the resolution we're going through at the at the atomic level that we're, there's so much going on it is so complex and that's just let's let's say that's just you and me having this conversation yeah. let's say we just have a calculation of you and me having this calcu this conversation yeah. 
Let's not talk about the planet. Let's not talk about the billions of and trillions of quadrillions mm-hmm. of, 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 of creatures on this planet and the variables that is. And then let's say we leave the planet for a minute and then let's start going into the universe. It, it's incalculable what yeah, well, is going when, on. The way you have to look at it though, Alex, is that when you calculate a virtual reality, you only calculate what some player is See, looking at. Right here, that's, that's all you need. Nothing more. Right. So here we are talking to each other, and you know, you, you know, we just we look at each other. We're communicating, but whether or not we have hearts, whether or not we have blood circulating, whether or not we have a brain in our head, you see, none of that's being computed. All visually, that, yeah. visually, all the action is going as if we had a heart, as if we had blood, as if there were oxygen in the room, as if. You say all of those are just as if none of that's calculated. It doesn't have to be calculated. It's as if, you know, my uh, lizard guy uh, in, the, in one of the old, uh, um, <laughs> the, the old multiplayer game things, you, know, you go underwater and if you stayed too long, you drown. Right. Well, that's because obviously he couldn't are, get enough oxygen while he those was underwater. The, those that's are the, the rule set. So he drowns. Now, does that mean he's got lungs and there's, Somebody has to render oxygen in the air? Of course not. So you see, it's a lot simpler. Now, if all the players are not logged on, let's say there's no player logged on, what's being rendered? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right. There is no virtual reality. The virtual reality only exists in the minds of the players. So then one player logs on, and he's at one place looking one direction, and what does the computer compute? Just what he sees. Nothing more. So once you make this a, a, a probability and statistical based engine, not a calculated from the bottoms up engine, and once you only need to compute what each player sees, then that simplifies it tremendously because the things that we do can mostly just be done with draws out of, out of probability distribution. So you don't have to calculate We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, we're not sitting here and there's some, you know, our computer's calculating where all the blood cells are and where all the oxygen's in a room. It's not calculating any of that. Mm-hmm. It's just calculating what we're, so, how we're interacting, just the body. So that makes it a very doable problem. That's why you can have these virtual realities now that are look very, very realistic. And if you actually go in the high priced stuff with, uh, you know, the platform, the jiggles and shakes mm-hmm. and tilts. And, yeah, like, you know, if, if you really go into all of that and something that would spray, uh, you know, something on you, you know, smells and feels and, and feels and so like pressure. ready player one, like ready player. Yeah, one. Right. Yeah. Ready player one, the pressure suit, you know, if you went into all of that, then it would be so good that there really wouldn't be any way that you could tell much between the reality and the virtual reality. It would be just another reality that you lived in with a different rule set. So with that said, many, and this is now we're going into the the mystical side of things, as far as what I'm about to say in the mystics and the old texts of philosophies and, and spiritual texts, has been said that we are the ones that create our reality. 
by mm-hmm. our own mind, by our own consciousness. Mm-hmm. If we focus our intentions, what we think is what we what generally comes mm-hmm. towards us as far as an energy is concerned. It's as we're having this conversation, I'm computing it in my head and I'm translating it in the spiritual sense and what I've learned and what I've read over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that a lot of the things that we're talking about in the virtual reality space and a simulation is very close to a lot of the ideas that have been talked about for thousands of years. And when you talk about rule sets, well, if you go underwater too long, you're going to drown because that's the set of the, that's the rule set. But then you're talking about um, remote viewing, which mm-hmm. doesn't have okay. doesn't have rule sets, yeah. quote unquote. So how is that? So that's right. why you were so interested in that. You were like, yeah, wait a absolutely. minute. This is, I, right. I, I stayed underwater for an hour and I'm alive. What's going on here? Exactly. So let me let me just continue then and yeah. we'll get to, we'll get to that and okay. we'll get to the. Uh, um, the idea that your your intent modifies future probability. We'll get to both of those. Okay. All right. So here we are, and this is a uh, a simulation, and it's going to be probabilistic, and it's a multiplayer game. Now, because it's probabilistic, how are we going to tell what the next thing is that's going to happen? You know, if you uh, if you dig a hole in your backyard. What do you know it's going to be in there? You know, you don't know, do you? Well, when you put that shovel full of dirt out, something's going to be rendered in there. How does the system know what to, what to do? Because you see before, if you're the, from the bottoms up, all the little particles, then you know what's going to be next because it's going to be just the extrapolation of everything that happened before. So you know everything. But when you have a probabilistic, you don't know what's going to happen next. So how do you do that? Well, the way you determine an unknown, you know, something unknown that you make a measurement and it could be a, a hole you're digging or it could be some scientist with a telescope that'll look further than any telescope ever looked before. So it's gonna see something new, something unknown. What are they gonna see? Well, the way the system works with that is it takes a random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities. So you look at all the possibilities, what could be there Each possibility has a probability, and you take a random draw from that probability distribution. So the things that are most likely, you know, the highest probabilities are more likely to come out of that random draw. There's, that's, that's the way that that math works. Okay, so that's the way the system does things that are new. Now, in order to do that, it needs to create a database of all the things that are possible, and what their probabilities are doesn't have to be complete database. It can do some stuff on the fly, but it doesn't want to be stuck without having thought about it, you know, when it has to compute what's going to be in the, that hole that you just lifted the shovel dirt out. It has to have a lot of that already developed, already thought about it, already looked at a lot of probabilities. So it knows that for North America and certain parts of it, certain kind of things will be found. Now, Gulf Coast, maybe. Maybe there's a probability of getting a Spanish uh, gold doubloon that might come up because the Spaniards were all running around that golf area for a time looking for gold and, and uh, doing things. So, you know, where you are and, and what time it is, you know, what the year is, all that stuff would affect the probability of what you get in a shovel full of dirt. And are you in a sandy place? Are you in a place that's rocky? Are you in a, you know, whatever the right, geography right. is. So all of that's part of the probability distributions. 
So now the system has to have this database available, more or less, so that it can quickly go in, grab that. Every time somebody digs up a hole, they need to know what to put in there. Or if you go out of town for six months and you come back and you open up your refrigerator door, but you don't have any memory whatsoever of what's in there, when you pull that door open, the system may mem- know what's in there, but probably not because the game's all in the minds of the players, remember? Mm-hmm. So you open that door and the system has to know what's likely to be in there. So it's just even everyday things. You know, it's not, it's not just for little particles, but that same works for little particles. So that's the same way the quantum physics works. It looks at the probabilities, random draws taken. That's where you put it. Okay, so now we have that. Now this, this database is what the ancient uh, mystics called the Akashic Records. It's yes. a database of all the possible, all the possibilities Absolutely. and the probabilities of those possibilities. So that's a lot of stuff. So it has to have that. It needs that database in order to render. The rendering engine needs that database to work from. Now you are consciousness. You can go up and you can access that data. That data is in consciousness, a consciousness system. Mm. Now you'll say, well, where's consciousness? Well, where is not the right word. Consciousness is Mm non-physical. Information is non-physical. Consciousness is an information system. Now, When I say information is non-physical, take a book. You take a book, it's got a physical paper, and it's got physical ink, make splots on those paper, and that's not the information. The information is the meaning, the significance, you know, of of what those splots of ink mean in that book. That's the information. It takes a consciousness to get the information. Now, the book we'll call data. And we'll call what the consciousness gets, the meaning and the significance, the content of that book, that's information. Information doesn't take up any space, doesn't weigh anything, you know, doesn't, uh, you know. Uh, you know it's, not a big li- it's not a big it, library somewhere with billions yeah, and billions of isn't, books. Yeah, isn't phys- it's not physical. Information requires a consciousness to get the information. With no consciousness, then there is no information. It'd only be potential information. It's not till consciousness looks at it that it becomes information. Okay, so now here we are, and we're pieces of this information system. We're not our bodies. We're individuated units of consciousness. We are a piece of this larger consciousness system. So is the rendering engine and the computer that's making this virtual reality. But we can connect with everything conscious. That system is ours to play in or to roam in. So where does remote viewing come from? They're just getting data out of that database. And you say, well, they're they're remote viewing in the present. Well, that database, yes, it's the past, but the past is only one times 10 to the minus 44 seconds away from the present. So it seems like the present, you know, we wouldn't notice the difference. Besides, there really is no present. There's there's the future and then the past and the present's just a point in between them. It's uh, like where where the needle on the record is moving. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, In it's just ways. a point. Yeah, it's just a point. So that's how remote viewing happens. That's how people see auras. That's how people uh, can can uh, uh, what get information, precognitive, precognitive dreams. You know, they get information about the future. Now, the future is not a done deal. It's a probability. 
What are the prob the probabilities based that these on, things will happen? Based on so it's just a, on, the, yeah. on the on the on the on the rule set of the of the individual, let's say. So based yeah. on what I have the intentions of doing, what I've been doing, I'm probably not going to go off and shoot or kill somebody because I have no real yeah. general right. history of doing that, nor intention to do so. So that's where that probability will. I'm not going to become an astronaut. Right. Yeah, you'd be surprised how predictable we are. We all are. Yes. We're pretty. We're pretty predictable. Now the system has us in the database of every choice, every thought we've had, every feeling. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Everything we dreamed about, you know, all Everything. of that's in the in the yeah, database, and. It's available. So the system can make a pretty good model of us as far as predicting what we're going to do or not do. And we have free will. So we don't have to do what the system predicts. If we just do something, you know, on a wild hair and do it, well, then the system has to recalculate for that. But it's only those few things. And all in all, it's not that much. Can I stop, other, you? Can yeah, I stop you for one jump second? In. Can I just jump in for a second? So I, when I said the needles on the record, I just uh, some thoughts flew into my head. I thought I just wanted to kind of get this. If our future is this probable probability, so let's say psychics who come up with probable Edgar Casey, who was a you know a, a, you know mm -hmm. the, the sleeping uh, the sleeping uh, uh, clairvoyant, um, the sleeping prophet, and so on. There are there has been scientific tests on psychic abilities and and sure. paranormal psi and all that stuff, CIA, all that kind of good stuff. When they're looking at the future, they're looking at the probability of what is going to happen. It's mm -hmm. never a hundred. Sometimes it's a hundred percent accurate, but most times it's it's yeah. in the ballpark. It's it's yeah. because it's a probability because right. we have free will. At one moment or another, you know, you I can just like you know what I'm going to clown college because, mm -hmm. but probably I won't go right. to clown college because that's not something that I've ever had any interest in, nor do I feel like I want to do. But if tomorrow I could just look up, I'm like, I'm going to start clown college tomorrow. I'm going to leave my family and go off to the circus. <laughs> right. That's probably not going to happen. Right. Low but probability. Can it, but can yeah. it? Right. I have the free will to do so if I want to. Exactly. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And then with the concept of the needle on the record, anything that's passed past the record, that's already ingrained in the record. That's already been written because it's already happened in the past. The future, it's going in a certain direction because of probability. But, mm -hmm. at, but at any moment, it could skew off if something right. erratic happens, right. uh, that we generate something that erratically changes our trajectory based right. on a stupid mistake or something like that. Mm -hmm. Going out drunk sure. and going out drinking too much one night, get drunk, get in a car and something happens, that is something that shifts your entire right. future. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's the way it works. And that's where the remote viewing comes from. That's okay. where the precognition comes from. That's where the seeing ours comes from. Uh, all of that comes out of that. Now that that probable future is what it is what is computed. I mean, is what the system computes for that database. But then as time goes on, that probable future becomes the past database, because now we've moved past that point. And we have a database that's also it's the same database, but just after it's gone into the past, then we have everything that could have happened and the probability it would have happened. 
And then what actually did happen is just a little thread through all those possibilities and their probabilities. A little thread runs through that database. That's what actually did happen. So if you want to go look at a past life or something, you see it's all down there in that, in that, uh, that uh, probable past. Well, and that history thread, which is the actual past. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's where all that data comes from. Now, that does not explain things like uh, you modify in future probability with your intent. Okay, in order to understand that, you have to realize that, that one, entropy is, a, is, the, is the key motivator of consciousness. What I mean by that is, if you have a, a, a information system, and that information system is entirely full of random bits, all the bits in it are random, there's no information in that system, because randomness doesn't provide any information. But if you order some bits, now you've just created information. And if you give that order some sort of meaning, say, oh, that, that's, you know, each one of these bits, this is one bit, and these are two bits, and these are three bits, and I can take those three bits and add that one bit or subtract that one bit from it and it gets the same number as the two bits, you know, I, I give meaning to it then that lowers entropy even more. Entropy is a measure of disorder. So when all the bits are random, that's the highest entropy you can have in the system. As the system creates information, which means it orders the bits and it gives them meaning and significance, then it creates information. Then, you know, the system has information. So an information system evolves by creating more useful and more information. As you just said, we make choices, and by those choices, we raise entropy or lower entropy. We create a system that is more chaotic or less chaotic, you know, based on the choices that we make. You could choose to go shoot somebody, you know, or you could choose to go to clown school, or you could choose just to keep on keeping on the way Alex Ferrari has been keeping on for a while, but just doing better, you know. Um, it's always so, a hope for, sir. <laughs> yeah. So with all... You know, so we look at all of that, and that is the driver of this consciousness system has a driver. It's evolving. The system is an evolving system. It's not infinite. It's not all, you know, it's not perfect. It's just a natural system of consciousness evolving like the rest of us trying to stay alive. Because if it made a lot of poor choices and created too much chaos, it get all the way back to everything's random, then it dies. It's not an information system anymore. So now we have that. Now, the consciousness system started out as just a monolithic thing. It was just a piece of consciousness. That thing I said, it, it was aware that it could be in this state or that state. That's just the binary. That's the simplest state of consciousness you can have. And from there it evolved. Because if you can be aware of a one and a zero, you can be aware of a one, one, then zero, zero, or a one, zero, one, zero, and you can start making patterns of ones and zeros, and it evolves and evolves. And then you realize that, uh, oh, I can make regular time by just making a one and a zero oscillate one, zero, one, zero, that's a metronome. And now I have a measure a clock for measuring time. Now I can make sequences of ones and zeros and patterns. So it keeps getting more and more low entropy, more and more structure, okay, more and more things that it makes and gives meaning to. That's how it evolves. And it gets to a point where the evolution is slowing down. 
evolution often goes for a while, raises, kind of hits a plateau, then goes up and hits a plateau, and it takes it a while to get itself together to go to the next step. Well, the first plateau um, was solved by making regular time, because then it could do sequences, another whole dimension, time now, in which it could work, because now time's regular. Okay, so then it goes to the next point, and it says, well, we haven't been progressing very much. We haven't been making a whole lot of new information here because it's just one thing. It's just one thing. So it only has the ideas and the concepts and the whatever that just one thing can do. So what it does is the same thing cells did in our biology. There's a pattern here. And we'll find out that uh, evolution is what I call a process fractal. We have patterns that keep repeating themselves over and over in a, a process fractal. So what it does then is it breaks itself into some pieces. It says, okay, here's, I'm gonna break off a bunch of these little subsets of me that I'll call individuated units of consciousness and I'll give them free will too. And now having all these things interact with free will, suddenly there's another whole bunch of things and possibilities that could occur that the system didn't have before. So now the system has more room for growing, more room for changing, more room for becoming. So that's us. And then that kind of stalled out for a while because it was the larger conscious system and this big chat room full of, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuated units of consciousness all just chit-chatting with each other. And there wasn't really a lot of things happening that made important choices. There right. choices for lower entropy or higher entropy, you know, ethical choices, moral choices, life and death choices didn't exist. It was just a big chat room. So, then the system says, well, what we need is, is a, a virtual reality that these individuated units of consciousness can, can interact in with a rule set that's real tight. In other words, a rule set that defines all the details, reality. all the causality in the reality, because then there's going to be lots of choices. Rules make choices. If you have a game that has one rule, well, there's not that many choices. If you have a game that has 50 rules, oh, there's lots of choices. You know, it gets really complicated how all those rules might interact with one another. So the chat room was the first virtual reality, and the rules there were just communication protocols so they could interact and communicate with each other. That was the rule set. So the vir a virtual reality is defined as a space in which you can experience according to the rules. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Experience requires rules. So, so the system then takes this initial conditions and a rule set and starts to create a virtual reality. And of course, it doesn't do that the first time. It's a cut and try. You know, well, that didn't work. Virtual reality only lasted a minute, you know, before it blew up. All the stuff sucked back into the plasma again. And okay, let's turn gravity down a little bit. That's too much gravity. Now let's do it again. You see, so it had these what we call cosmic constants, and it did it again and again and again. And these constants eventually got tuned. They got tuned to work with each other. So now we've got these five or six cosmic conscious, uh, constants that we know that if any one of them changed in the eighth decimal place, the whole universe would have disintegrated. It wouldn't be stable, not stable long enough to create what it's created. So that's one of the things called the anthropomorphic, no, the anthropic principle, right? If you can, you can look that up, the anthropic principle. Why did all of these cosmic constants turn out to be so 
perfectly tuned with each other. How is that a random event? So, so, and the constant and the constants are gravity. Uh, There's a couple of other magnetism. Yeah, yeah the forces and a couple of other things. So, that, yeah, but those are the, that's what you talk about when you talk about constants that are yeah. like you know gravity is gravity, period. Right. Mag, you know, magnetism. And is, all of these things, the scientists say, have to be. You know, they all are calculated down to, you know, I don't know what, you know, 15, 20 places, I guess, however much we can calculate them. But if any one of them changed in, let's say, the eighth decimal place, the whole place would have not evolved. It would have crashed. Oh, yeah, because you of one, one, little, one little thing one off little thing, and, and it just and skews. It, the, right. The whole thing has to be balanced. It has to be tuned. And that's called the anthropic principle. They called it that because it seems rather odd that all of these constants just were perfectly tuned to eight decimal places so this thing could be stable. <laughs> and how did that come about in a, in a universe that's supposedly chaotic, you know, was random and chaotic? Well, see, this, is, this explains it. It's, you know, digital Big Bang, you know, cut one, you know, digital Big Bang cut two. Digital Big Bang cut 10,000 until it finally fine-tuned everything to the point that it was stable enough to do what it needed to do. So now you have a virtual reality that's there, and it's there for the individual units of consciousness to log onto and play the choices of those avatars so that now the choices are consequential. They're meaningful. They can create chaos, and they can get rid of chaos. They can create harmony. Whereas just being in a chat room, it's hard to either create harmony or chaos is a difficult thing. to. It's more. Yeah. So then but again, it all comes back to then we have the choice. Right. We have the we have the, we have the rule set and the infrastructure, if you will, the the right, the, the, the base, the foundation to do what we need to do. These these ideas that we were talking about, the principles mm -hmm. are in place. So it is our choice how we move right. and navigate through this. So then my next question is, which is the larger question, what happens when this consciousness runs its runs its course? What happens oh. when the program ceases? Okay. Well, there's probably not likely that that will happen. Um, well, the, well, the the agreed. So in other words, the consciousness keeps going, but the avatar runs out. Oh, okay. When the avatar runs out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, that's jumping on another. Let me finish this. Can I go? Sure, sure, sure. Go for it. Go ahead. Let, let, me, let me run kind of where we were going. So, because I wanted to answer your other question I haven't gotten to yet. Okay. And that is, all right. Uh, so we have now this virtual reality and think of it as a schoolhouse. It's mm -hmm. a entropy reduction trainer for individuated units of consciousness. They're going to go play in it because now by making choices, they can lower their entropy and the entropy of the system. And as each player lowers its entropy by making low entropy choices, choices toward, um, well, I won't say that yet, low entropy choices, then the system also, its entropy lowers because each piece is a part of the system. Okay, what those people said about we're all one, it's true. We really are all one. Anyway, when you have a social system, which is a lot of individual, individual units of consciousness and the operating system, if you will, you know, the, the main thing that, was, that we are all chips off of, when you have a social system and that social system is interactive, the pieces are all interactive with each other, the optimum for entropy reduction, which means 
higher evolution, better evolution, is if those pieces cooperate with each other rather than fight and struggle with each other. If they share, if they care, that makes that social system more effective. Okay, now I can do that in detailed logic, but I think that's just obvious enough most people will get that. Mm -hmm. If the pieces are always fighting and trying to kill each other get, and tear each other down, then broke. they're not going to build much. And if they do build something up, it just gets torn down again. You know, it's, it's not stable. So if you want a stable, low entropy result, then caring, sharing, cooperation is the key. So what that says is that we're in this virtual reality to make choices. And if we make those choices toward what I call the love side, the caring, sharing, cooperative side, then that lowers entropy. If we make it toward the, to the chaos side, which I call fear, the fear side, then that's raising entropy. So we're here to make choices and by those choices, we evolve. Now, every schoolhouse needs to have feedback to let the students know how they're doing. Because if you go to school and there's never any feedback, it's really hard to learn anything. One of the feedback systems is that the students get to modify future probability, which means they have a hand in what they're creating. They have an influence. Now, they're not, they don't create their own reality entirely, but they're part of it. They have influence over what happens in the future because their intent modifies future probability. So now you are a person and you are a happy person and you smile a lot and you're nice to everybody and you try to be helpful. And if you're positive, then you'll find that your life will be pretty much fun and you'll enjoy it and everybody will like you and you'll like everybody and life will be good. If you're a nasty person, you just use people. That's all they're good for is, you know, what's in it for me and you're fear-based, then your life is going to be unhappy. It's going to be miserable. You're always going to be in pain. Your relationships are always going to fail. So you see, we get to create that. We can create a place that's nice or we can create a place that's nasty, depending on the choices that we make. So that's our feedback. So we as a, as a whole, you know, this reality is a product of us in many ways. It's what we create. Mm -hmm. When you look at the news and look at what's going on in the world, you realize that we're not all that grown up yet. This is not a graduate school or even a college. It's like daycare, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's about that level. You know, we're down at the daycare, uh, maybe going on in the kindergarten sort of level here for our own evolution. And this reality that, that we see out there in the news, that's us. That's the way we are. Those are the level of choices that we're making. Fear. See, and they're fear-based choices for the most part. So that's the way it is. Now, this idea that we get to um, modify that future probability distribution, now what does that mean? Remember, if you, if you dig a hole, you take a random draw from that distribution. Now, if you really, really want, you know, a gold doubloon in your hole when you dig it up, because now you're down on the, on the, the Gulf Coast someplace where the ship sunk or whatever, you know, and if you put a lot of effort into that intent, then you'll raise that probability. If that probability was one in a thousand, well, then now it's maybe only one in 500. Well, is that's, it, it, that's it, good, but you're still probably not going to get the, the, the balloon in your hole because it's still one in 500, but you've changed the probability. You see, but so with our, so let me jump in for a second. With our probability, with our intention, are we drawn closer to 
the doubloon if there is a doubloon to be found? Well, what happens is there is no doubloon, just like there is no spoon. Remember the kid in there? There's no in spoon. Metrics, in the metrics. Yeah, there, there, is is no, no there is no doubloon. It's just when you dig the hole, then the system takes a random draw from the probability distribution to decide what to render in that hole. Because until you dig that hole, it renders nothing. So there are no doubloons until you dig that hole. And there's maybe one, like I say, one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand that you're going to dig a hole and you're going to find a, a gold doubloon. If your intention there, then you'll make those odds better and better. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But because it's so far, maybe one in a hundred thousand, it's going to be hard to make that something that you can just go dig a hole and find a doubloon. It's not likely to happen because there's so much. But what about things that are not so, don't have such high probabilities, like uh, is the sun going to shine next Saturday? Eh, there's a lot of randomness in that. So see, it depends on how much randomness is in the situation. If there's a lot of randomness, then yes, you can modify probability. Now, what about physical things? Healing people with your mind and the, the uh, idea that uh, what you think about that new pill, you know, make a difference to how the effectiveness placebo. that new pill is, the placebo effect. Now we're down into the range of biology, and there's tons of uncertainty in biology. Hmm. You know, we don't know, but a, a, a little bit about biology and all the things that it works. I mean, the system is hugely complex. And all sorts of things happen. Even sometimes people have stage four cancer, three months to live, and they get rid of it. It's gone. You know, it happens. So mm -hmm. whether this lump here is benign or not benign, you know, is cancerous, well, nobody's done any measurements on it yet. So if I have an intention that says it's going to be benign, then the probability of it being benign goes up because when that thing gets cut open or the biopsies taken, that's when the random draw from the probability distribution is made and it's either benign or it's cancerous, you see, but not Got until it. then. So see, that's, that's back in the, in, with the physicist, that's when the wave function collapses to a physical, you know, to, to a physical value. That's how that works. That's the thing the physicists don't understand. So that's, that's how that works. So Yes, you have a placebo effect because if people have an intention, oh, gee, I took this new magic pill. Doc says everybody who takes this pill gets better. And something like, you know, 40% of the people that have that placebo and are told it really works good, oh, they get better just, you know, not just they think they're better, but they really do get better. Their body heals. That's because of the intention. But now let's say I've got a knot here, but I'm a worry wart. And I say, oh, no, I got a knot in my neck. Oh, I hope it's not malignant. I hope it's not cancer. It's right there where the lymph glands are. That's, <laughs> that's bad. And if I start worrying about it, well, now I'm putting energy into it being cancer. And the probability that it's cancer is starting to go up because I'm putting intention, not that I want it to be cancer, but I'm putting that, that energy, that vibe out saying, oh, you know, I'm worried. I'm worried that it's cancer. And that raises the probability. That is cancer. So it's intention. So it's all about, again, going back to intention and going back yeah, to your, your thoughts, your ideas. Yeah, it your goes back to your thoughts. And the reason we have that is because it's given to us as a feedback mechanism so that we have some, some uh, hand 
in what we create. We have to, you know, what do they say? You have to sleep in your own bed or walk in your you own lie, shoes. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. lie in your own bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, you know, you have to deal. You reap what you sow, whatever it is. You know, basically. You made your bed. That, now you got to sleep in it. That's it. That's the one I'm thinking about. <laughs> so it's it's like that, you know. Okay, this is our reality that can tell us how we're doing as, say, a species, humanity. All we can do is look out here and, and see. So we're not doing that great right now. No, well, like I say, we're we're maybe a daycare. You know, we're not all that grown up yet. But that then gets you back to your original question. That's how you can modify future probability, because that's just part of the way that works. And the way the system works is at random draw. So, got it. Now, it's, uh, I mean, these are the things that make you know the kind of let you solve these paradoxes. You know, how does this? How does it work? How does a remote viewer work? Well, it's exactly how they work. They get data out of the database. You ever seen those kids with the blindfolds on that can mm -hmm. see? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they're remote viewing in real time. You can it's, do that. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So I know uh, for everyone listening, I know we've talked a lot about virtual reality and systems and things like that. But this is our analogy for our own existence and our own life. And the, the, when you mentioned the, the Akashic Records, um, which is a very mystical idea. Yeah. Um, but when you start translating it into scientific jargon, you start in talking about data points and things like that, it starts to make more sense. Then you start bringing things in like the matrix and you start thinking about simulations and you start thinking about these kind of things. It's, it's a fascinating idea of how the world works. And again, this is just such a melding of science and, and metaphysics, spirituality, you know, mystics. Yeah. It's fascinating. I love the way you have been able to bring both of those worlds together for people and try to make sense of it all. I mean, you really truly are creating the theory of everything, yeah. which is a fascinating way of looking about it. I mean, so there's about a thousand, a thousand ideas that have been flying into my head as you've been talking, and I've been like computing it and remolding ideas that I know and, and, and concepts that I've read and translating them into what you're saying. And you're like, okay, mm -hmm. so if that's this and this is that, and that's how this goes and, and probabilities of this or that, mm -hmm. but mixing it in. So mixing science and metaphysics and metaphysics is mm -hmm. pretty fascinating. Yeah, well, you keep in mind that this is a model, okay? I'm a physicist, you know, and what physicists do, they make models, or we also call those models theories, if you will, you know? You notice that we don't talk about laws in physics anymore. Newton did that, and of course, he found out it wasn't a law at all. It just was something that worked in a special region. It sort of worked pretty well. You know, it wasn't really a law. So we don't do that anymore. We've gotten rid of that particular hubris and arrogance in, mm -hmm. in science. And now we say that everything is either a model or it's a, it's a theory. So it's the theory of, you know, the theory of, uh, you know, quantum physics, or it's the theory of relativity. Or string theory or something like or that. Or string theory, yeah. So everything, but theory doesn't mean like in a mystery novel that that's your, that's your guess. You know, oh, it's my theory that the butler did it. You know, it, <laughs> that's not what scientists mean by that. They mean that they have something that is logical, some kind of a logical uh, system, you know, a system of logic that should have a couple of requirements. One, it should have the fewest number of assumptions possible. Because you can 
kind of derive anything if you've got enough wild cards. You know, you can make any hand at all in your in your deck if you got enough wild cards. And every assumption is like a wild card. Oh, this is just an assumption. We'll just assume that that's true, and we'll assume that's true, and assume that's true, and assume that's true. Well, you can make anything out of anything if you have a whole lot of assumptions. So you have to have the smallest number of possible assumptions, and you need to have something that is simple and elegant because anything fundamental will be simple. If somebody needs six pages of math to explain something, that's not fundamental. That's some logical trail. You know, it's down the down some logical rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. Right. Yeah, to that thing, and that takes a lot of calculation and stuff. But things that are fundamental, like the nature of reality, need to be simple. They need to have very few assumptions, and the the theory needs to be elegant. But it is a theory. It's a model. So it's not that I'm That's saying this is the truth and it must be this way. I'm saying this is a model. Models are judged not by how, you know, not by a popular vote, you know, how many people think they're good. They judge solely on how much, how many good answers, how many good explanations can they give? Can they explain everything that we know to be a fact? In other words, things that we've done experiments with and we know the world is this way. And can they explain new things? And we can find out whether they're facts or not. And if a model is really good at explaining what we know, then it's a good model. And if it only explains this part, but not the other part, then it's an okay model for this part. And that's fine. But we know that there's something at a higher level that will explain both. So that's where Einstein started going in the in the you know the 40s and 50s and so on. He was trying to come up with a toe, and his toe was to unite quantum physics with relativity, because those two things kind of make up science now. Physics they make those two ideas, those two models make up what's most of physics. So he wanted to reunite those because he knew each one only worked within kind of its own area, and they had some assumptions. There's assumption in one that's refuted in the other. And then there's assumption in that other that's refuted in the, in the first one. So they, they have some philosophical problems between them. So Einstein and everybody else knew that there was some other understanding that was at a level, a higher level of generality above them from which you could derive both. And he called that a toe, a theory of everything. But that was just a little toe because he was only uniting physics, quantum physics and relativity. What my model is a big toe because it not only it not only allows you to derive from first principles all the physics. I can derive relativity. I can derive quantum physics. I can answer all the uh, unknowns. The what do we call them? Uh, paradoxes in physics. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But it also is a model of the subjective world as well. So it explains everything that happens in the subjective world and everything that happens in the objective world equally. So now there's a science of the subjective, a science of the objective, and it's all derived from a science of consciousness. It derives both. So that's kind of where this, this is. Now, we've just skipped across little bits and pieces of it. It really is a logical model, but it is a model. And, yeah. you know, I tell people that if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. So what you have to do is learn how to experience this larger reality, how to learn to experience 
consciousness, not just from the viewpoint of the avatar, but from the viewpoint of consciousness. You are consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't have to get out of your body. That's a very unfortunate metaphor. You're not in your body. You're consciousness. Your body is an avatar. You're the player. You make all the choices for that avatar. You see, so that's that's the uh, kind of the way it worked. And then you mentioned, I'm finally catching up on the questions that you've asked. I'm just not answering them as fast as you ask them. No problem. And that is, you asked about, well, what happens when the avatar dies? Okay, so we kind of worked ourselves up to that. Now, you are this consciousness, this individuated unit of consciousness, but you take a piece of that, a piece of yourself, and that's what is the local consciousness that's making choices for your avatar. Because you, the individuated unit of consciousness, are the are more than that. You're more than just that one person, Tom Campbell, that one person, Alex Ferrari. You're all the various experience packets that that consciousness has had. Okay, so that's what other people call reincarnation. You know, you have lots of experience packets because the whole point is to lower your entropy, and that's not easy. You have to change yourself at a fundamental level to do that. So it takes a lot of time. So what happens is that Here's, here's the way it works. Let's just start with the death. You've got an avatar and your avatar dies. It's the same thing as when your elf dies, World of Warcraft. You go, you go resurrect it or you go get another elf, right? Because the game isn't fun if you only get to play once. And also only once through one character's perspective. If right. you're an elf, it's different if you're a wizard or if you're a princess or <laughs> right. whatever it is. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, if you're really going to learn the game and how to really play it well, you can't do it, you know, just with <laughs> one one shot at one character is just not enough variation over the possibilities to really get very good at it. And this is the same way. So in this model of mine, this logical model, I don't add reincarna- reincarnation, which I call uh, multiple experience packets because I try to stay away from buzzwords and, and sure. very religious things because that turns people off. So that didn't come out because I thought it was a good idea. It turned out because it was logically necessary. All of the things in my model are just things that are logically necessary. So it's part of the logical process. And so you die. And as soon as you die, you begin to reunite with your individuated unit of consciousness. You were this free will awareness unit is what I call it. That's the subset. That's like you put down a partition. You partition off a piece of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that piece of yourself only has representation of its quality. Its quality means how low is its entropy to this point? How How many good choices has it made versus how many bad choices has it made? So what is its quality of the consciousness, which is, you know, the higher quality is lower entropy. So you get that the quality of consciousness then goes on into the, you know, to that avatar. I mean, that's the part of that, that uh, that's the part of that IUOC that logs onto the avatar and makes the choices for the avatar. It's just that subset contains your quality does not contain any of your intellectual part. So the first thing, you know, the first thing you're aware of is the first time you get some kind of sensory information from that avatar, which is probably in utero. You know, you see lights, lights and darks, you hear voices, uh, you know, 
you have an environment in there. It's spongy and you punch it a few times and you it kick it and it's slushy and you know, you have all these all that sense data coming in and you start getting that. But you identify as that because that's the only experience you have. You came with no experience, just with your quality. So now you have to start with fresh experience. Now, why do you do that? Why do you don't come with any experience? You don't come with any experience because your whole point here is to grow up, right? Make good choices. And you have to make those choices that really are representative of you. And if you had the intellectual part, what you do is game the system. Right. You'd say, oh, I'm here for this reason and this. I need to, you know, I need to uh, be kind. So I'm going to be kind all the time. And I see something and I'm going to do kind things. But there's a big difference between acting kind and being kind. Mm. You see? Now, if you have that, all that intellectual knowledge, you'd act kind because, you know, that would be the right thing to do. But that's not being kind. So it has to come out of your heart. It has to come out at the being level that you are kind, not just that you're acting that way. So the intellectual part just gets in the way. Besides that, that intellectual part is overwhelmed with experience. That intellectual part would have, you know, what, uh, 10,000 past wives, you know, 50,000 past children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't deal with all of that. You know, that's... Uh, but so, that's, to just, so just for a second, I just want to kind of bring it back down to the gamer in me. Um, when you go back into the game, playing it by a new player, the player itself starts off from scratch again and starts to accumulate uh, experience points, skill sets, things like that. Mm -hmm. But the player on a, on a conscious or on unconscious level has played this game two, three, four, five other times with five or six different kinds of players and brings that experience on a subconscious yeah. level to what they're doing now. They still have to go through the journey, but there's certain things, certain skill sets that they might've picked up. Like, you know what? I know how to swing the knife, the sword this way that I know that if I swing the sword this way, it's going to get me that way on a subconscious mm -hmm. level, even though the sword's different and she doesn't have as much power as the orc did, this princess is swinging the sword in a certain way because yeah. she's bringing that into the right. game. We're getting deep into the weeds here, guys. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, <laughs> but does that right. make sense? Yeah. And it's not so much going to be about swords as it is about attitudes. Right. Attitudes I'm just using it as a your, gamer. Too. Yeah. Attitudes toward yourself, attitudes toward others, those kinds of things is what you bring in. And then you live this life and you do whatever you do and you gain, hopefully you'll decrease your entropy, you'll raise your quality of consciousness and your avatar dies. When your avatar dies, that partition between the individuated unit of consciousness, which contains all the lives that you've ever lived, and this free will awareness unit, which was just the subset without without the intellect, but with the quality, okay, that partition starts to come down. So you start to reunite. Now that free will awareness unit is just a one-off, okay? That's just you, that's Alex, and that's a one-off. That character doesn't get replayed. That character's done. So you start to become the individuated unit of conscious, not the, not the free will awareness unit that was making the choices, but the bigger picture now. So you got a bigger picture of what's going on. And that happens slowly not just one big slam, you know, that wouldn't be good. Everything kind of has to happen with a little gradual lead to it. Otherwise it would be disconcerting for people. So that petition starts to come down and you start to get a bigger picture for, uh, 
perspective because now you're the individuated unit of consciousness. This is really what you are. That's that's the fundamental you. Okay. And in the beginning, okay, let's go right to the detail time. Okay. You are alive now. This second, you're dead. Then what happens? Well, you become aware that you are aware. You know, the Descartes moment. Oh, I'm still aware. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I'll go that way, you know, move toward the light or whatever you want to do, go through the tunnel, uh, you know, metaphors, right? These are all just metaphors. We make tunnels up, not because there's tunnels there, but because we have habits of thinking that you can't get from A to B if you don't move. And the only way we can, <laughs> the only way we can create a sense of motion is by moving next to a, a thing that's not moving. So we create a tunnel for us to move through so that it provides us with a sense of Security motion. Blanket. Yeah, so it's a yeah, so we make up these things and we move and then we maybe all meet, uh, you know, Aunt Susie and Uncle Fred, who part of our family, or whatever, and they say, Oh, yeah, everything's fine. The whole process there, I call this the, uh, you know, th this is a reality, another virtual reality. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And this virtual reality is just for transitions. It's just the transition reality. It's all it's for. So you go there, and the whole point of the transition reality is for you to relax, let go, and begin to decide what you want to do next. And in as much as people come excited or upset or angry or because they just got shot in the middle of a fight, you know, and they're all wadded up, you know, in as much as they come that way, then the system tries to relax. It's okay. You're fine. See, Uncle Fred will tell you it's a nice place. And none of that stuff is surreal. It's not really your Uncle Fred. That's just the system playing your Uncle Fred through the data that's in the database that defines Uncle Fred precisely. Uncle mm -hmm. Fred's gone on. Uncle Fred was a specific free will awareness unit. That's over. But all his data's still in there, so the system can, can emulate Uncle Fred Exactly. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so you knew anything that it takes to, to make you feel more at ease. Now, if seeing your relatives doesn't make you feel uh, better because you really don't like your relatives, it then, might you're be Jesus. Gonna, then you're not going to see them. It might be Jesus or it might be Mary or it might be your high school uh, math teacher. You know, it could be anybody there that would help you relax. The system is just trying to get you to calm down. And then if you're, if you aren't very excited and you are already calmed down and the process is very quick, then you just start thinking about what you're going to do next. You make some plans and then you find yourself another spot and you go back in for another experience packet. If you are kind of wrapped around the axle, then it may take longer for, for you to let go. So it kind of depends on where you are, how evolved you are, I guess, when you get there is whether you're you're a little wide-eyed and crazy or whether you're okay right. with right. the process as to what you go through. So that's just a virtual reality called a transition reality. And as soon as you get to the point that you say, Hey, this is kind of boring. Uh, you know, what's next? You know, what can I do next? Now you don't have to ever do anything. Your free will is always abided. You know, nobody ever tells you, you must do this or you have to do that. You always have free will. You can always say no. And you always say yes. So if they say, well, you ready? You can say no. You no know, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to hang out. I really out had a bad bit. time. I'm going to do something else, you know, or I want to go to some other real out, virtual reality. I don't want to go to that one anymore. 
and you can do those things and you don't have to ever do anything. But eventually what happens is you get bored. It's, it turns a long time just to sit around and, you know, um, not have any particular purpose or thing to do, but you can sit out as long as you like, but then people say, well, you know, I'm not learning anything. I'm not growing. I'm not becoming, I'm not evolving. I'm just wasting time. Let's go back in the simulator and take another shot at making good choices. Okay. Now it's, last it's... time I had this problem, I'm going to try to get past that problem this, this next time. So that's the way it works. And then you go back, you now, the individuated unit of consciousness, you partition off another piece of yourself called a free will awareness unit, and that then goes logs on. Okay, so that's the, that's the cycle, it just goes around and around. So your consciousness, you're immortal, you don't die. Your avatar does die. And when your avatar dies, it's retired. Now, a lot of times people get real upset with that. And they say, No, no, I want to go meet up with my beloved children and my wife and all this and my parents and we're all going to be happy together in the hereafter and well it doesn't really work like that when mediums call up your dead uncle fred they basically are talking to the database or to the larger conscious system projecting itself through uncle fred's you know uncle fred's data yeah that's what they're really talking about and those those connections that you'll get like that from a medium, they're not there because Uncle Fred needs them. Uncle Fred's done. Yeah, he's good. They're, he's good already, right. They're there for the person that's still here that still has closure or other issues or needs right. to make. That's, that's who that's for. It's not for Uncle Fred. Now, could Uncle Fred ever learn anything from it? Maybe, but that's not he, the point. Yeah, from everything that I've seen and I've had mediums on the show as well, it always is about helping the people who are here. Right. It's never, I've never heard any medium go, you know, Uncle Fred really needs to get this off his chest because <laughs> it's, he's, ha he can't really just, he's not chilled over on the other side. Yeah, right. He needs to make sure that you, like, that's never a thing. It's always about no. helping the person yes. that's here. Yeah. That's the message that's coming through. Um, Thomas, I, I, I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And I, I'd love to have you back one day because there's a thousand other questions I want to ask you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you two other questions uh, that I ask all my guests. Um, what is your mission in this, uh, this uh, reality, this, this uh, time that you're here? Okay, the time that I'm here with Avatar Tom. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I came here with a, with a mission uh, to uh, understand, you know, the virtual reality, the nature of reality, I kind of came with that. And the reason I say that is because when I arrived, I was very right brained, I was very intuitive. I was, uh, I was the little five year old that would sit in the back of the car when my I had a sister who was two years older than me. And we going on a trip, you know, the, the six or seven or eight hour trip that you take with your parents someplace mm -hmm. or vacation. And you know how little kids are, are we there yet? Oh, <laughs> are we there yet? I've you got know, the kids, I know. Yeah, it starts like 10 minutes after you pull out of your driveway. Are we there yet? <laughs> yes, you know, but I wasn't like that. I would sit in the seat and I would kind of relax and then I'd start uh, chanting. I'd have a little chant that I made up and uh, I'd start this little chant going and before you know it, uh, I was gone. And then six hours later, we'd get there and I'd wake up and, oh, we're there. Oh, gee, only about 10, 15 minutes went by. That was quick. 
So uh, I, I would do those kinds of things. And it annoyed my sister to no end because she needed somebody to play with. You were that was gone. before, you know, that was before Game Boys. That was before uh, all the entertainment that now comes in a little box to entertain a kid. You know, you had to interact with another child, actually, mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than with a, you know, with a, an electronic device. So I kind of left her by herself. So I was kind of odd that way as a little kid, very intuitive and very right brain. But I knew that I had a very strong drive to develop my left brain, develop logical process. So I struggled with it and I worked at it and I worked very hard at it. Math was very hard for me because that's all logical process. But then eventually, you know, by the time I got out of, got out of college and partway through graduate school, it just clicked, you know, and then I got it. Oh, okay, then math got to be easy. But I struggled with it for a long, a long time before it became, before it became easy. Anyhow, so I came with the idea that I needed to develop the left side so that I could understand the bigger picture. And as I go back a couple of past lives, I've been working on this preparation for this thing for two or three other lifetimes. So I'm unusual in the sense I've kind of more scripted into what I came here to do, which is unusual. Most people come just because they, they need more experience, they need more opportunities, making choices. And maybe they have some plans like, well, I was, I really got angry a lot. You know, I kept, I have this anger management problem. I keep flying off the handle. And when I do that, I just, you know, I just tear up everything. You know, it ruins my relationships. It ruins my employer, you know, my employee, employer relationship. It's just, it just doesn't work well. So I got to, I'm going to get a, a, a an avatar in a situation where I really get that hammered into me, this thing about, you know, controlling your, your anger, I, I need to deal with that. So you can make some plans, you can even make plans to interact with particular other beings while you're there. But these are in the margins, mainly, you just go back. Because everybody has free will and trying to predict what's going to happen and what it's going to be like and who you're going to be next to and you know, who you're gonna end up with and all the rest of that stuff. That is just so hard to predict because everybody has free will. So those Got plans it. can't be too detailed. They can be very rough general plans. But as soon as you get detail, you'll get frustration because those plans will get blown, you know, blown away with, with free will choices. Well, it's like they say, it's like they say, you know, you make the plans and God laughs and it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So and anyway, that, so that's what I'm here for. I'm here to do pretty much what I'm doing. Develop this. I had to go into science. You know, I had uh, uh, a need to go into science. I had a personality that required me to derive everything from first principles, everything. I could not remember how old I was. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. Unless I started when I knew when I was born and I'd have to calculate it to the date. But if then a, a day later, somebody said, well, how old are you? I'd have to start it with I'd have to calculate it to the date. And if the next day somebody asked me again, I wouldn't remember. I'd have, it just was the way my mind worked. I had, everything had to be calculated from first principles. I couldn't remember which was my left hand and which was my right hand. What I'd have to do is in my mind, I would have a, a baseball, a ball, and I would throw it. 
And then I would look and see which hand I threw it with, and I knew that would be my right hand because I had that was some, a fact. That's a fact that I had, you know, that I knew. So if somebody said turn right, I have a mental picture of a kid, he's throwing a ball. Oh, that's right. Instead of most people who just know it just is an intuitive knowing which is the right and which is the left hand after a while. I always had to calculate it even into, you know, I don't know, until I was probably 50 years old did it start become more, you know, become natural to me to know which was which without having to calculate it. But that was good in physics because I didn't accept anything if I couldn't derive it from the ground up. And that made me very slow. I'd get into a test and I'd have to derive the answer from the ground up. And other people just memorized an equation and plugged and chugged and got the answer much quicker than I did because I had to derive all those equations. I had to know exactly where they came from. So I got struggled as a, as a slow, slow learner for a while until, you know, eventually uh, it you got, got, it. It got, got it. better and better and better. But that's, you know, that's just me and how my mind works. And it still works that way. I can't, I don't remember things that other people remember in the sense that it's, it's a, a thing to memorize. I can't memorize anything. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, where can people find out more about you and your book, My Big Toe, and 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 all your stuff that you do? Okay, um, they can go to a web page www.my-big-toe.com. They can go to a place, and there you'll find lots of things. Uh, you'll find my uh, my uh, YouTube channel. You can get from my website. That is uh, www.youtube.com slash TWCJR44. That will take you right to the, to the uh, YouTube. Now, the YouTube channel has several thousand hours of me talking on it. You know, it's, wow. uh, it also, though, on my website, there's a, uh, a search link that goes through all of the thousands of hours and picks out by subject what you're interested in. So if you're interested in the free will awareness unit or incarnation or, you know, whatever, it's there. Uh, it's there. You just put that in and it'll give you a whole list from the most important at the top to the less important down below, just like Google. And it'll give you a list of where to find it. And if you just click on the link, it'll take you right into the middle of some video where it talks about that, about That's that amazing. subject. So that makes it uh, a lot easier. Um, and you get your book I, on Amazon I, and things like that. Yeah, books can be found at, at Amazon and places where books can be found. Uh, I have a website. You can get the books at the website, too. Let's see. I have uh, the books out, of course, My Big Toe. It's a trilogy. And that's basically a theory of consciousness. And it mentions the science a bit, physics. And it, it does mention about, uh, you know, how uh, you can derive uh, physics from, from consciousness. But most of the science is not in the book because I wanted my book to be readable by the average everyday person. I didn't want to put science in there very much. I wanted to keep it simple, logical, but, but elegant, straightforward. Elegant and elegant, yeah. sir, and elegant. So uh, anyway, that's that. And one other thing is that I teach courses because I tell everybody, if it's not your truth, it's not your, your reality. It's not, you know, if you're not your experience, I mean, it's not your truth. So, they said, well, okay, I'd like to experience the larger system. How do I do it? And I'd say, well, yeah, go off and, you know, 
Google remote viewing or something, go do it. And that didn't last long. Pretty soon I was backed into a corner. They were right. I needed to give them some instruction. So I started teaching courses in doing paranormal things, experiencing paranormal things, how they work, why they work that way, what to do, what not to do, techniques and all of that. And you can find that as a, a course called an intensive course, which now I took, I did it probably a hundred times brick and mortar, you know, eyeball to eyeball. Mm -hmm. And we took all of that, it was all videotaped. And we took all of that and did the best of all of them. And now it's an audio program that you can do on your own. It's like a five day program, comes with binaural beats that you listen to while you do stuff if you're not a good solid meditator. So it'll teach you how to do everything paranormal uh, and explain what's going on and why they work that way and, and what to do and what not to do. And then I have a book that I just published the last just before Christmas last year uh, called Tom's Park, which is a, a process. It's a tool for helping those people that have been working and working on doing things like out of body and, and remote viewing, and they're just not all that successful at it. They have a little bits of success now and then that just tease them enough to know that they can do it, but they can't really do it whenever they want to. And it's, it's on again and off again, and they get frustrated with it. So I've come up with a new way of approaching it, all the paranormal things that is much easier. I've eliminated that big that that big transition between I'm here in this reality and now I'm there in that reality and that transition is a is like a wall that people can't get through mm. their intellect gets in the way all of the paranormal happens on the intuitive side, none of it can happen on the intellectual side it's all on the intuitive side. And your intellect gets in the way it crashes the intuitive side the intellect right. wants to judge and analyze and do right. all that stuff and that just judge and it just trashes your intuition so so there's, there's this tom's park that uh, it's a very small book only has 60 pages uh it would seem to be a high price for 60 pages it's like 80 dollars, but it's really not a book it's a it's a program it's like a course that you would take but it's iterative you have to keep going around it and as you go around it many times it builds progressively to where you get better and better and it gets easier and easier and pretty soon you can do all the paranormal things with uh, whenever you want to so Thomas it has been an absolute pleasure and honor speaking to you sir uh, we'll have to have you back to talk more about the the the, the fabric of reality and, and where we're all going so I appreciate you my friend thank you for all the insane amount of hard work that you've done uh, while you while you're here in this incarnation sir so I appreciate you my friend thank you again for coming on the show Okay. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. I want to thank Tom so much for coming on the show and enlightening us on how quantum mechanics and consciousness are connected. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 094. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.